0: Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16, Paul writes, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, I adore you. I thank you so much, Father, for this day, for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father. God, I am so nervous about this, Father God, and I'm so conflicted and I want to do it the way you've laid it out for me, Father God, and I'm not sure that I even understand it completely, and I know, Father God, that I'm not living it. And so I feel so unqualified and so hypocritical standing before my brothers and sisters, Father God, and proclaiming this. But, Father God, I, I, I know it to be true because I see the evidence within the Scriptures, and that's enough for me, Father. So I pray, Father God, that I share it humbly, without any arrogance, without any scolding attitude or scolding tone, Father. But at the same time, Father God, that I pray that I don't preach it weakly, just because I know, God, that I've got so much to grow, so so much uh, uh, maturity, Father God, the uh, left to be achieved in my life. But, Father God, I pray, God, that I preach it as if I am standing in Your stead, preaching about a model and a, and a goal, Father God, that's greater than myself, and that is Jesus. So now, Father God, as I come and as I preach, as I proclaim the name of Jesus, as His power and His gospel, Father God, is preached among these people, Father God, I pray, Lord, that for anybody who doesn't have what we're going to talk about today, that they would go to that root source, to the gospel itself, to the blood uh, on the cross at Calvary, Father God, to an empty tomb and an occupied throne. I pray, Father God, they cry out in mercy for mercy, Father God. I pray that now, Father. I know, God, that you're listening, that your, your heart, Father God, is condescended toward us, ready, Father God, to hear the cries of one who is tired, Father God, tired of a life lived for themselves. So, Father, God, I pray that as I as I preach this now, God, that you will give me divine intervention at this moment, Father, so that I can preach, God, exactly what you sent me to preach. I adore you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray the Lord. Amen. So now I've got three things I want you to kind of pay attention to um, as I talk. First one is this. Um, if we or the church is unpeaceful, or the word I'm using is disharmonious, which is, I guess the right word. We are that because we're immature. Maturity is a big deal. If we are that. We are because we're immature. Two, we are immature because we are unsurrendered to Christ. By definition, mature people are completely surrendered to Christ. And if we are, if we desire, therefore, to surrender to Christ, to surrender to Christ is through the Word of God. That is our only path is through the through the Word of God. So now, let's, let's talk for just a little bit. Um, I'll preach, you listen, pray for me because I've struggled with this and um, I know it's bigger than me. Sometimes, Oftentimes, they are much bigger than the man called upon to preach and this is one of those times. Um, without Jesus, as far as I can explain to you, humans are like the, gen- the world of Genesis 1-2. That this is what, what Moses writes. He said, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It doesn't mean you're exactly literally like that, but what it means is this, is that the action of creation was in Genesis one one, right? God created heavens and the earth. It's not just a title or a beginning. It's literally an action. It's what He did. God created it. However, in God's creation, what was created was Without form and void. God then, while hovering over it, speaks into it. And what comes to the chaos is now a divine order. The world is the way it is because God spoke it not just into being, but using His voice, ordered it. Structured it in such a way. Everything that we see about us, sexuality and gender, everything. Authority and submission, all these things spoken into being right there by God. God creates the world as we would recognize it. The world before that we wouldn't even recognize. Now, I am am saying that that is a wonderful symbol of what you and I are like in our lost state. We are created. We are human beings. We have all those definitions that make us human. But at the same time, we are without order. We are chaotic. We are tumultuous. There's a very tempest, a storm raging inside of us. And that God, at the moment of salvation, reaches down into us with His Word. Literally, the Word spoken by God. He reaches into us, what does He do? He brings order to that chaos. We would do our own thing and go our own way and do all that kind of stuff. And God stands in the way with the Word. Look, for men and women, the Gospel... The words of Jesus concerning His life, death, resurrection, and ascension to kingship, that's the gospel. Everything that Jesus fulfills in that blessed life is the gospel itself. And every verse of the Bible that supports that is part of the gospel. All this, the gospel, brings order and completion to the chaos and futility of our sinful lives. Without the gospel, we're chaotic. Now I I know that they're going to be. We're we're maybe in a weird. It's always like this. So just let me, uh, not parse words. Some of us came to Jesus so early in life that we were by definition chaotic, but it was not as measurable as say that fifty year old man who comes to Jesus who's lived fifty years completely for himself indulging his flesh and then he comes to Jesus the chaos of his life is not just measurable, it's obvious probably to everybody but himself some of us who came to Jesus in our teenage years or our twenties, we understood this idea of chaos, didn't we? because our life was a disaster and Jesus spoke into that the gospel and brought order to it, what was once a wild ride is now smoother and straighter, and pointed toward Him and not toward our own ambitions and our own desires. So, so everybody in here has an experience with this. Some of us more so than others. Some of us more understand what it's like to really be living a chaotic life. A life in which we can depend on nothing. And that we're desperate now for the gospel because we realize that the life we're leading is just killing us. It's ruining us. Brings nothing but misery. And what we want is hope. We want hope. The the gospel does that. The gospel beautifully does that in our lives. His word in us breeds the kind of submission. I said a grown up stature in Christ. That's what I'm really When when I talk about this idea of maturity, I want to kind of head that off a minute. There are two kinds of maturity at play within the church. One is a kind of maturity that comes with old age. All right, A kind of maturity that comes with just getting older. And that's not to be, I'm not turning my nose up at that. That's a good kind of maturity. As I get it more, I understand it more. And and to be honest with you, I understand why the church needs it so much. That's why a church of of 20-year-olds just doesn't work very well. They never start, ever on time. Now, a church of, of senior adults is going to start five minutes early, but still, so, so there's a need for that. But I want to I draw a line here, folks, another line, I apologize. Um, just being older doesn't make us biblically mature. It just doesn't, it just makes us old. Hang out in church a while. There are plenty of senior adults who are not scripturally, biblically, um, spiritually mature. They've spent their lives pursuing other things, and they've retired in that pursuit. They never had time for it. And now they're old, and, and they have never achieved maturity. Because Christian maturity isn't, isn't necessarily just automatic. So... So as we talk about this idea of maturity, what I mean is a grown-up stature and crossed. Now, it's going to be hard for a 20-year-old to have it, but it's not assured in a 70-year-old. It does take time. There's no doubt about that. It takes time to read through the Scriptures, to understand the Scriptures, to study the Scriptures. It's a big book. It's a very, very big book. But if you're not doing it, you're never going to get there. If the book isn't an active part of your life, you'll never find it. If you're too busy and you work too hard and there's just too many other things you've got to do to do that, then guess what? You're going to get those other things. You're never going to get spiritual maturity. You'll get human maturity. But you're never going to get spiritual maturity. What I'm talking about today it's what happens when God's people pursue and achieve spiritual maturity. So let's, let's go on. I know that's a lot in, in, in stuck in the middle. I do apologize. Let me do the best I can to catch up. His word in us breeds the kind of submission, grown-up stature in Christ, spiritual maturity, that Paul describes and we long for as people. In the focal passage, I think Paul tells us what this maturity looks like. I mean just in everybody. Before we talk about men and women, what in any one of us that's truly spiritual mature, spiritually mature. Now I'm going to say this for you to understand, I am not this yet, no way. And if you know me, you know I'm not. I'm a total hypocrite coming in here saying, "This is what we got to be, because I am not it either. I wish I was. I wish I could stand here and say, "My goodness, I know I'm what God wants me to be because I'm not. I'm not. Good times maybe. But there's something awesome in this, and let me share it with you, okay? Let me not t- talk too much. Okay. What kind of man or woman are we to be? What does it look like to be spiritually mature? Okay, we're gonna go back to our focal passage. One that is constantly rejoicing, no matter the circumstances in his or her life. Wow. We're saying if, if we're gonna be mature Christians in this room right now, look. Um, if the church budget is full or if it's empty, we rejoice. If the personal checking account is full or overdrawn, we rejoice. If we're well or we are sick, we rejoice. Hey, that's the one that gets everybody. I'll tell you, let me, t- let me tell you what gets the church, what especially plagues senior adults. There are some rejoicing people. Till so sickness hits. One thing, say you're rejoicing until you get sick. Cut to the bone by illness. Rejoicing. It just sounds like something I know I don't have. And be blunt, it's not something we don't have. But now that's Paul's standard. So we're rejoicing no matter the circumstances, no matter what the current what currently is going on in our lives, we find a way in Christ to rejoice. Oh, one that is forever praying to their God with confidence that they are heard. So we're not just mumbling through prayers. We have an active and powerful prayer life. We are going to God constantly. Listen, not just when we need something. Don't look at me funny, because everybody in this room prays harder when they need something, right? Right? Everybody in this room prays harder when somebody we love is sick, or we're short of money, or there's a family problem, or there's a problem at work. Everybody prays harder when there's something to pray about, right? Paul says the mature person is constantly praying. And the way I've interpreted it in my own life is, I start praying in the morning, I end at night. It's not hours set aside in the morning. It's a prayer that starts when you wake up and ends when you go to bed. It's not formalized. It is a lifestyle and an attitude of prayer and connection to God. It does not, it does not set aside this idea that you can spend hours in the morning. But you can spend hours in the morning and not be constantly in prayer. You can spend hours in the morning and get up from that and never think of God again. And have him not cross your mind and do exactly what you want to do. With your life. Because part of this is not just have confidence that he hears, but know that he hears and know that he answers and know that we listen in terms of the scriptures. There's one thing that has been driven home to me more and more and more often is that we have to always listen to God in prayer in terms of the scriptures. Because we will, believe it or not, hear what we want to from God. We will superimpose upon our prayer life his answer, not our answer. I mean, Excuse me, our answer, not his answer. God's saying one thing, it's in line with the scriptures, but we want so desperately something else to be true, and so therefore what do we do? We believe that we heard what we heard. We hear nonsense. So even my hearing has to be reined in and informed by the holy scriptures, because God only says that which is in line with his word. If his word doesn't say it, he didn't say it. So so that's huge hearing, submitting to what we're hearing because we're, we're listening in terms of the Scriptures. And one that is eternally and presently thankful to God for His blessings and His challenges. Always thankful. So we're always rejoicing. We're always praying and always listening in terms of the Scriptures. And we're always thankful. No matter what's going on, we're always thankful. Wow. Like I said, it's not really anybody I know. We all have our moments. i got my moments. There's some things I've gotten to be pretty good at. You can walk up to me after this church, after this service and tell me that I totally disappointed you with my sermon, and I will probably rock right on, rock right on with it. it. It'll hurt my feelings, but you'll never know. Just will. I've gotten good at taking criticism. Some kinds of criticism. But not all kinds. I wish. I was thinking when I prayed over that statement. Now I'll never forget um one of the times I kind of got beside myself in here, and it wasn't that I had really reacted or anything badly. people are people here who are witnesses, but I will never forget when I was doing like uh doing Bible study on Wednesday night, and the comment was made that my gravy was too thin. Now, no offense I'm used to taking criticism about my about my preaching, just not about my gravy kind of took me back a little bit. I'm like, what, really? Huh? And that's when I realized in the middle of that I was waiting for some gravy suffering, which I didn't even know existed until that moment. But, but it did. See, there's one of those times in which I, I didn't react. So I wasn't mean, but I wasn't able to be thankful. I'll be honest with you. When, you learn to be, when I learn to be thankful about everything, I'm going to be a fantastic preacher and a fantastic pastor. I'm just able to be thankful because sometimes you have to learn to be thankful for things that really logically aren't thankworthy you know somebody offering a substantive criticism is thank there's there's, there's a thanks that should be with that somebody just saying you stink why well, do you build on so you stink H- how do you how do you change to meet that well you can't so as soon as I get this down man, I'm gonna be great I'm just, I just don't have it down yet and to be honest with you, but most people in this room don't have it down either, do we? We're thankful until our order's late. We're thankful until we're embarrassed. That's a big one. People will die for Jesus, but getting embarrassed for Jesus is a totally different thing. Completely different animal. We're thankful until we're embarrassed. Do you understand the difference here in what I'm saying? So, so let's let's, let's move on. I can, I can go on forever. You know that. Okay. real and impactful maturity is the work of the gospel in our lives what does the gospel do and i mean not just in our eternal life but what's the gospel doing right now is continuing to make me more and more and more mature okay mm-hmm. The uh, writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.1, he says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. That pushing on toward maturity. A surrendered maturity is God's will for you and for me. For this church and the church universal. God wants this church mature. and He wants the whole thing mature, But He wants you specifically mature." He is calling you today to a higher level of scriptural, biblical, emotional, intellectual maturity than you've ever had before. And that's everybody. This is not for the young. This is for everybody in this room. I know you all pretty well. And we've all had immaturity, don't we? We all do. What does it do for us? Well, first off, It's an outpouring of our love for and a devotion to Christ Jesus. Why be mature? Because that maturity shows just how devoted we are to Him and how much we love Him. If I'm lingering, if I'm malingering, if I'm not growing as I should, what I'm really saying to the world is I don't really care that much about Him and I really don't love Him. Let's just be blunt. How many people in this room, when you got married, changed for that other person? Everybody. Everybody. Some more than others. Some wives gave way more than the husband did, and some husbands gave way more than the wife did. But everybody changed, didn't we? We had to. How many people in this room changed when you had a child? Huge jump. You're a totally different person. The second that little person looked. It was funny that Karen said it, because technically, who is already a dad? Lucas. Already. Already. Baby, I will say this, I know it's changing him now, the second that tiny person emerges. Besides the fact that they totally take over, don't they? Jasmine Jordan, it's all about J.D., right? You are his parents. He is this tall and he runs everything. The house belongs to him. There's not one square inch of it that does not belong to him, right? second they come out, they take over, but you also realize just how different your world is when you see their eyes, right? Wow. It was all real and eternal and true, but speculative. But when you see their face, you realize how much of a person you've got to be and how much you've got to change. You realize how inadequate you are when you look into their little eyes what it means to have a godly dad what it means to have a godly mom and what it means to not have a godly dad and not have a godly mom real, all this stuff is all taught until you see them and then it's real it's totally real if that's all true then how much should we change for our Lord I love my kids I love my family but they didn't die for me but Jesus died he suffered he suffered he was stricken because of me. How much should I be willing to change for him? How much should I be willing to give up? How much should I be willing to turn my back on? Everything. Okay. Also, it breeds in the membership a steadiness and dependability which makes the church as a whole durable and peaceful. I want you to understand what I mean by that. What I mean more than anything else is church by its very... And this is all the ones I've ever served in. It's been a bunch. A bunch. A bunch. They're great when it's going good, but let one little pothole, one little bump the road, and what happens? Throwing people off right and left, aren't we? You know why? Because the church is more often than not defined by immaturity and not maturity. You show me a mature church, you know who can lead it? Anybody. Show me a mature church, do you know who can, you know what they can do? Anything, it doesn't matter how many people there I'd rather have 50 mature Christians than 5,000 immature. 5,000 immature will never get anything done, and you watch it. They'll never have anything. 50 mature believers can change the world. The churches that we study and act, to we'll be honest with you, many, off, many times uh, smaller than that. Enough people to fit in a living room. And they turn the world upside down. What we want is a steadiness and a dependability which makes the church as a whole durable and peaceful. That's what happens when we're mature. Now let's look, how do we get there? Look, as with Mother's Day, what we speak of is both unique to the call and equipping of mothers and and today fathers and universal in dealing with issues of Christian maturity and the literal use of the Scriptures. So what I'm really saying in a fancy way is I came in here today to talk to mamas and daddies, but along the way, men and women, grandmothers and grandfathers, great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers, everybody in this room today is receiving a very literal challenge to grow in Christ. It doesn't matter if it's Father's Day. No offense, I can't say this on Mother's Day, Father's Day is a made-up holiday, we know this right. Yes, the card company's made up Father's Day. It was a great way to make money, and it worked. Let me add something else here. I was just thinking about this this morning, not insulting to your father, please, because I am one. My Father's Day's not about me. It's about my dad and her dad. As long as they're here, that's going to be the focus of my Father's Day all the time. And i tell you something, if your dad and your granddad are still alive, then what is your Father's Day about? Them. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't get to be about us. Who cares? The point is this. The point I'm making is this is a great opportunity for us to come in and challenge moms and dads. To to reshape the family. To do something we don't do all the time that we ought to do more often. God uses this so we can really preach about what it's like to raise a family in Christ. So now, let's let's talk about these things. Paul speaks to two groups in the church in Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read it here in a second. You just, just hang on with me. Mature men and mature women. It's a term he uses. The word that he uses to describe them is presbytes, which means old man or ambassador. And like I'll say, I'm 51. I'll be 52 at my next birthday. When the average lifespan is about 45, like it was in the first century, I'm an old man. Okay? Not everybody makes it. I understand that in this day and age, people just live and are healthier just a lot longer, to be honest with you. Um, I, just to share it in mind, some of you are, are 20 or 30 or 40 years older than I am. Think about how many 90 year olds you knew growing up. How many do you know now? How many people are 90 and still driving? People just live a lot longer nowadays. So it doesn't mean that we have to redefine this idea of, of, of older or elder. What it really means is we need to give it all the credit in the world. If you're a man in this room in, the, in your 50s, you're definitely an elder. If you're a woman in this room in your 50s, you're definitely an elder. Don't be insulted by it. It's a place of honor. Do you understand? If you're a woman in your 60s, your 70s, if you're a person in your 40s, you probably are also. Even your thirties, so so don't think because we talk about it this way you can just tune out. That's all I'm saying, okay? So let me share just a little bit more. What it does mean? What does it mean to be an elder person in the church? Look, I, look, I don't believe Paul's discussing recognized church leadership, as in the uh, the episcopae of First Timothy three one and the diaconos of First Timothy three eight. These two offices, shepherds, the episcopae, shepherds are pastors. My office, pastor. And servant ministers, deacons, diakonos, are formally called positions which are under the auspices of the Scriptures. You have as many pastors as God leads you to call. You have as many deacons as God leads you to call. Alright? Some guy can't stand up in your church and say, I'm going to be a deacon today. These are, as we understand church polity, formally called positions. Okay, but now, time out. Pastors and deacons perform the duties of leadership without which the body and its efforts would suffer. But their ministry is not the only brand of leadership which blesses the church. And I say, by the way, in the Bible, leadership and serving always go together. As Christ teaches in Mark 10, and whoever would be first, you, first among you must be slave of all. So if you are in a call position within this church, if you are a pastor or a deacon, understand that you have tied around your waist an apron ready to serve and not on your head a crown ready to reign. God called us to serve Him and by virtue of serving Him, serve you. I don't lord over you. Do not put me on a throne and carry me around. That's not me. I will jump out, I promise you. That's not who I want to be and that's not who I'm called to be. Our leadership as we understand it, as a leadership that's only as deep as our serving. Only as deep as our serving. Now look, um, in Titus 2, 2-8, through 8, Paul defines church society in terms of that kind of practical influence that we have on each other, which means that if you're an elder, if you're older, if you're more mature, you have people underneath you that you have an impact on. That's the way church is really supposed to work. Uh, Brother Brian, not in terms of pastorate, or not in in terms of the deaconate, but in terms of older people influencing younger people. That's That's the part of the church that is independent of any leadership, Ms. Beverly, we call. In fact, I'll be blunt. If we're doing the elder part right, leaders and pastors and deacons have a really easy job. In fact, I'll say this, pastors and deacons, uh, Brother Joe, can be kind of inconsequential if the other part works the way it's supposed to. Our job is needed and hard when the other part doesn't work very well. All right? So so let's look and see what he says, just in terms of mature to immature. He says this, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love, and sound speech, that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." Now, let's, let us me explain. Um, as we should expect, Paul has done what he always does. He defines maturity in men and women differently but equally. Your level, ladies, of maturity is not the same as mine, but it's absolutely equal to mine. It's just as important, it's just as vital, it's just different and it is prepared, to be honest with you, for your specific talents and not for my specific talents. Your maturity, therefore your duty in this church, can only be done by a woman. In the very same way, our duty, our maturity in this church, men, can only be done by us. And if either one fails in what they're supposed to do, the church suffers. Let's understand that right now. Never in a million years is this about me talking and you listening. As Adrian Rogers said, it's about how you here do. Now, mature men should have personal attributes that look like this. They are serious-mindedness, manly dignity, self-control, and soundness in faith, love, and perseverance. So we're serious, sober-minded people. We're always thinking about the most important things. Our children, our young people, men can afford to be, to be uh, childish. We can't afford childish men. Now, every church I've ever been in was afflicted by childish men. We can't afford to be childish about things. We have to be so... It doesn't mean stick in the mud what it means is we're always serious. We always look, always want the best for the church. We're serious-minded. We have manly dignity. We're self-controlled. We have that sound faith, love, and we persevere. Godly men must be the bedrock on which the young in the church can anchor themselves. I have said this and said this and said this. This church will never be more mature than its men. If we are immature, the church will be immature by definition. And I'll say something else, and I mean this. If there's one thing we have to insist upon, is that men will never grow in maturity outside of the church. You need this, men. You need to be here. Simply put, as we've always said in the South, every time the doors are open. This is why the men of the church must be in attendance at all times. You know why? Because we are a fixed point upon which our families and the younger, more impressionable members will guide themselves to the work of Christ. There are people in this room, men, following your example. Following your example. And if look, if you treat Wednesday night church like it's nothing or Sunday night church like it's nothing, they will do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same. In the very same way your children picked up every one of your bad habits, these children in the church will pick up your bad habits. Exactly the same way. The absence of men in the postmodern church is an illustration of its doom. The reason why the church is sinking fast is because men have abandoned it. The absence of men... Okay, when men are elsewhere, the void left by their inattention is too cavernous to span. We just simply can't Make up for missing a generation of men. We can't do it. One demonstrated, excuse me, our demonstrated maturity acknowledges the fact that we are monolithic in our approach to the matters of the faith because others are watching us and emulating our faithfulness. We live every day, everywhere we go, ball field, work, whatever we're doing, we live in such a way and talk in such a way and pray in such a way because we know there are people watching us. Once you Look, once we take on the mantle of being a man in God's church, you are no longer yourself and you're no longer entitled to your own ideas. You can't just do what you want to do. It's the bottom line. Women, likewise, you must be reverent in your behavior, living in a manner which is characterized by truth and sober living. We must, listen, we must not exist in a church world which is tormented by the excesses of women or the weakness and neglect of men. Every doggone church I have ever served in in my life was tormented by weak men and excessive women. Everyone. Every church I've ever been in was nothing but pure de-chaos because men were weak and women were excessive. Sorry. That's exactly what goes on in every single one of them. So what's going on right down the road and down the hill and wherever else you go. That's what's going on right now. Men have abandoned it, turned their backs, took their heads in the sand, and women, because there are no men, because there are no men, have recreated church society into their own image. I'm not saying that women are bad. I'm saying that men and women are bad. I'm saying we're both bad. And if, if men hold sway over your church in an ungodly way, they will absolutely destroy it. And if women hold church over hold sway over your church in an ungodly way, they'll destroy it too. I am rejecting the 21st century notion that men are bad and women are good and replacing it with a 1st century notion that both are terrible. That without Christ, we all fail. And if you lead in your way, you'll destroy it. And I lead my way, I'll destroy it. That's what I'm doing. The impact of the maturity of both sexes is described in the passage. For women, you are teachers by nature. And no burden is more important and more, no calling more vital to our success so much of the gospel in this room right now, from the songs we sing with little baby kids to what is spoken of to teenagers and adults, so much of it comes from the mouth of our women. If there's one thing we've got to acknowledge in this room, something that burdened me this morning as I was writing this, wanting to do it in a way that's respectful, was that I realized that no church that i ever served in my life had a called authority... And an informal authority as much as this one does. You out there can think all the decisions are made by a bunch of old men in some room somewhere. But the reality is, reality is not the truth. There's no no church I've ever been in my life that that more acknowledged the authority of, of women than this one does. It's just a lie to say different. You're respected. And your opinion is needed and desired. And it's never spoken ill of. And it's right, I believe, in line with Scripture. It's okay to have an opinion and okay to voice that opinion. Part of your goal as as carriers of the cross along with the men. Look, the outcome of your teaching is the Christian home, the bedrock of our civilization, which is defined by love, respect, discipline, and a homeward inclination, no matter where you earn a living. Hear that? Ladies, if you work outside the home, so, so, you still go there and you still influence it, don't you? There's no doubt. We live in a 21st century world in which men and women are both going to have to work more often than not to earn a living. Look, men, our teaching leadership is equal to theirs. Young men will never learn self-control unless we teach them and become living demonstrations of the work of Christ in the human heart. Men, we are teaching the young men how to be married, how to raise their children, how to love their wives, how to protect them, how to provide for them. We're teaching these lessons constantly. We want to have committed falters. We better look at our own example. Ladies, you think things are wrong in other, in other houses, then maybe we need to look at our own example. As teachers, we show integrity and dignity and Christ-honoring talk, which is not salacious in its in its wording, it's, but clearly that of the Lord. It's scandalous because of what it says and not because of how it's said. We aren't those people with the shrill voices. We say it in as kind a way as possible, but it's what we say that make people mad. When we sufficiently died to ourselves and been reborn into Christ's honor and maturity, then the peace of God abounds in us as a church. No, there's a decisive action which our Lord takes when we have this creation. It's described in John 21, excuse me, by John in Revelation 21 5. He says, And he who was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God is literally making everything, including his people, new. At the present time, we exist in a world of strife and chaos. And what we need is deliverance from that way of life. The way the world is, the wars and famines, sickness and death, tragedy and violence which defies the globe as we experience it will mercifully end and be replaced by a perfect and eternal version of itself. Isaiah first described this merciful cataclysm. In Isaiah 34 verse 4, when he writes, oh, the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. The end of all things. Equally overwhelming is the reclamation of mankind through the sacrifice of Christ and the gospel message. So what Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead by, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look, Paul's language concerning human salvation just, just strikes me. He says, buried, baptism into death, newness of life. Look, we understand it's spiritually inherently violent new birth is. But it's essential to the work of Christ in restoring the creative order which he founded in Genesis 1. So I guess the the larger doctrinal and theological point I'm trying to make is, is that salvation isn't just about you going to heaven. But salvation is about God restoring the creative order for everybody. He does that by way of us. He does that by way of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation and revelation of the sons of God. Beginning with the connection of mankind to the universe universe altering death of Jesus. The Lord's intention is not just to constrain our sin, should me, contain our sin, but to kill it and our old men and old women, the old people we are. He wants the old you and the old me to die, burying us in the overwhelming death of Jesus, which brings us and ultimately the world into an eternal newness of life. So I think the, the, the point I'm making is this. That for for too long, I think a lot of people have come to the cross really wanting one thing, a sanitized version of themselves. They want to come to Jesus and not drink anymore, or cuss anymore, or look at dirty pictures, or lay out all the time, or do all these bad things we do that we know are sinful. But they don't really want to change their attitudes. They don't want God to stand between them and a job they like. They want to be regular under the blood. They don't want their life to look enough different from their neighbor to be able to tell the difference. They just don't cuss as much as he does. They want a sanitized version of Tony. A sanitized version of Brian. God's plan is to murder the old you, bury him in death through through Jesus, And then raise again in your sin a new you that looks like you and talks like you in some ways, but is radically different. See, most people want the salvation. They don't want the change. They want to go to heaven. They don't want to live different now. God offers only one. You will go to heaven because He has changed you so much you're living differently now. And he will not give you heaven as fire insurance so you don't have to have something bad happen to you. And you can therefore live the rest of your life the way you want to. I've said it before. I'll say it again. That's biblical nonsense. It does not exist within the pages of Scripture. And a person who thinks that is by the definition of Scripture Lost. Lost. The change comes incrementally. I get it inconsistently. There are going to be times in which you feel like you're less like Jesus today than you were yesterday. Everybody goes through it, but finally realized in the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. So, there will come a time in which you close your eyes in death and you open them again in new and eternal life in which you'll be just like Jesus. Do you understand that? You won't have the struggles you do now. But we have to wait for that. God's goal for believers, the church of the world, is characterized by a single Hebrew term used 210 times in the Old Testament. And more than any other word, it summarizes the Lord's will and purpose in redeeming the world. Look, if propitiation is the the, uh, word that makes salvation work, it's the how of salvation, then the why of salvation is shalom. Shalom. Brother Kyle mentioned it. Um, in his sermon Sunday night. Shalom. Give me just a few moments. It's a legacy of the church. By, by Christ's own proclamation, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now as the world gives, do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Often translated as peace, it means so much more. Peace can be merely the absence of war. Shalom is harmonious coexistence. Brotherhood and sisterhood. we talk about peace in terms of the church, more often than not is what we want is an end to fighting. Shalom is unity. Shalom is everybody loving each other and on the same page. Shalom is totally different than what we would call peace. Capturing the rhythmic harmony of the created order as Christ spoke it into being. It's the diametric opposite of the formless and void cacophony of that proto-earth, the one we read about Genesis 1-2. Shalom is the will of the Lord for His people and His creation. The shalomic balance of humanity and the world, which is the opposite of our antagonism, is the shining future which the gospel envisions. See, the wonderful thing about this shalom is that God achieves it here. It is that truly that glimpse of heaven. When God's people love each other so much they put all their differences aside and they all believe the Bible as it's written together, then what happens? we got a peace that God made and man didn't. A peace that man makes is an accord. It's a treaty that we sign and we can break at any moment. A peace that God makes is founded in the blood. It begins with peace in here, peace with yourself, and extends to others. It's peace in the family, peace at the job, peace, peace on the team, peace in the church. That's what God does. That's what I'm trying to sell you today on, is the idea that God can and will and does make peace in the lives of the most chaotic people. God does that. That's what He wants to do. Look, the best definition... Of this was by Cornelius Plantinga. When, Christ, when, when, when Kyle mentioned it the other day, I literally texted myself this quote. So I got started on this last week. Plantinga wrote this He said, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew, Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind. Or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes creature, the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. You'll see shalom in the Bible. Shalom is the perfect peace of Isaiah twenty-six, three. How many of us have prayed that prayer? Or it's the abundant or great peace of Psalm one, nineteen, one, six, five. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Or as Paul says in Philippians four, seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This kind of harmony is the fruit of the gospel and summarizes everything that our Lord desires to do in us and to display in creation. Solomon records Proverbs 3, 1-2, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace that will add to you. The goal of salvation is so much more than merely an escape from death and punishment. We've got to stop thinking that way. You've got to stop thinking that way. And we can't even express it that way. It's so much more. It is the realization of a God-honoring shalom in each life, which is best depicted by submission to biblical authority. You want peace? Surrender to the Bible. I could have said this whole sermon in that one statement. If you want peace, surrender to God's Word. Until you surrender your life to God's Word, you will never have peace. Believer in this room, you want to know why your heart heart's so chaotic? Because it's unsurrendered. Unbeliever, have the storms and the hurricanes of this life almost taken you? Surrender to the Word of God. Surrender to it. Submission to biblical authority which leads to mature manhood and womanhood and promotes harmony in the church. We'll be harmonious when we're mature. We'll be mature when we've surrendered. Today, can you honestly say that you're mature? That you've surrendered everything to the Word of God? If not, brothers and sisters in Christ, today's the day to to surrender. Whatever the issue is, come to this altar and cast it upon the altar and walk away. We should do that with kids, right? Have these little things where kids come and throw a cell phone on the altar and things like that. And adults, we got so many weightier things than cell phones. So surrender, don't we? Come to the altar of God and surrender that which that which destroys you. If you're an unbeliever and you want peace from the storm, surrender in Christ. Let's stand together.